Welcome to the third installment of a four-week series called I Am Not Myself. We're talking about uh, gender identity, sexual identity, and following Jesus together uh, in a world where these things are so contentious and so confusing. Uh, it's worth repeating as we get started this morning. Every, first of all, that Jesus absolutely has something to say about these things uh, and that everything that he says really is good news. Uh, so if, you, if you're here, uh, maybe a friend invited you or you're watching online for the first time or something like that, and you, you are wrestling with gender and sexual identity, Jesus has good news for you. And if you're here this morning, you're a, you're a part. Today we're going to be talking about the larger machinery of the gender and sexual identity movement. If you're a part of that larger machinery, Jesus has good news for you today as well. Uh, I do want to say by way of introduction that today will be... Uh, so this is a unique series, this is a unique sermon within a unique series, so unique on top of unique. Um, usually, you know, if you've been around faith community for a while, usually we teach through things, we start in verse 1 and just teach our way through. This just isn't going to be uh, one of these. Uh, there's going to be a lot of history today, a lot of philosophy today, and everyone's going to be okay. Does that make sense? Um, in the first week of this series, we talked about the romantics of the 18th century. We're going to have a little review now. Okay, is everybody ready for review? Yes. Does anyone else love history? Yes. Okay, then you're going to have a great time right now, okay? In the first week of this series, we talked about the romantics of the 18th century. They were atheist philosophers and poets who taught us that to find the true you, to find your true self, we need to look within. They didn't, uh, they didn't want anything to do with God and they didn't trust human reason and so they said, if you want to know yourself and you want to know the truth, look within and that's where you'll find it. For the romantics, we said, freedom and authenticity mean the freedom to express that true inner nature, that true inner self. Philosophers call that expressive individualism if you care about things like that. Here's a great example, and this expressive individualism is, is reinforced in all of our storytelling as a culture. So here's just one example. If you've ever watched J.K. Rowling's most recent film trilogy, Fantastic Beasts, and Where to Find Them, have you seen uh, these movings? I, I, I love J.K. Rowling's books. They feature a character called an obscurial. An obscurial is a person that has been born with powerful magical abilities. So that's their true inner self. But if they're unable to express that, what's, what's called an obscurial is formed. And they become extremely dark. When that true inner self is repressed, they become dark and dangerous to themselves and everybody around them. They hurt themselves. They hurt the people that they love. It's a powerful romantic story that J.K. Rowling is, is telling. Here's just an interesting aside though. Ms. Rowling, if you know anything about her, is, an, is a vocal and admired supporter of gay and lesbian identity, but has gotten in a lot of trouble recently because she's not an advocate of trans identity. She believes trans identity is a threat to feminism and women's identity, and so she rejects some parts of the LGBT and, and, and is a vocal supporter of others. So even within the romantic, even in the best romantic storytelling, there are these irresolvable tensions about which inner selves really should be expressed and which should not be expressed. We'll talk a little bit maybe about why, 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 how we decide which is which. In any case, we, we said over and against the romantics is the Lord Jesus 
who says to us that uh, the inner self is not the true self. Uh, it's clear in scripture, your desires and longings matter tremendously to God. And they are a part of who you are. But that's not where the truth is found. In fact, God says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. If you remember that from week one. Jesus says that true freedom and authenticity is found in denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him. Matthew 16, 24. It's in losing ourselves that we find our true identity, our true selves in Jesus himself. So that was the first week. Then last week, Porter talked about Freud. Freud was a romantic as well, but he disagreed on this one major point. So the romantics taught that you're born with this innately good and beautiful inner self. Well, Freud taught that your true self is actually quite dark. Uh, those, those nightmares that you have where you are just screaming at your children or you're hurting someone, Freud would say that's the true you. That's you with all the controls off. And above all else, the true, the true self is sexual. From the time you are born, you are primarily a sexual being. It's a, it's a very, very dark philosophy, but it's taken hold of our culture's imagination. So for Freud, the purpose of life is pleasure, and that pleasure is found primarily in having sex. And you will not be happy until you are having, you won't be authentic, you won't even be a real person in some sense, until you are having sex with the people you want to have sex with in the way you want to have sex. sex Freud made sexual pleasure so central to Western culture that the, even the way we define ourselves, uh, there's a whole, whole new vocabulary for that. So words like heterosexual, homosexual, pansexual, asexual, and on and on the list goes. These are nonsense words without Freud. Uh, they, would make no, they would make no sense if Freud hadn't made this a part of our reality, and yet this is how we define ourselves now, how we define our personhood. So if you bring Freud and the Romantics together, what you wind up with are people whose bodies are simply a canvas on which we are working out our true, inner, authentic self. And over against this again, you know, is the Lord Jesus. He never had a romantic relationship in his life, never had a sexual encounter in his life, and yet he defines true personhood. He's the quintessential human, the quintessential definition of goodness and fullness. And he teaches us in the pages of scripture that our bodies have meaning written right into them. If you're looking for an identity, Jesus would say at least part of that story, not the whole thing, but part of it is written into every cell of your body. Okay, with all of that in mind, then there's our review. We're going to take a look at our scripture reading for today, and we have one more atheist philosopher this week. And next week, no philosophers, okay? But just one more this week. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 3 together. That's our scripture reading. And then we're going to turn to the question of why sex has become so politicized in our uh, world today. Daniel chapter 3, it'll be up on the screens as well. And here's what it says. 
King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Does anyone else get the impression this was not an optional gathering, okay? You needed to be there. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed in a loud voice, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and so on and so forth, all the peoples and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The repetition, by the way, of those lists is a literary device to help you understand there was, this was not an option and there was enormous pressure when you heard the music bow down, okay? Verse 8. Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe blah, 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 and so forth Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Here is a facet of American public life that should strike every person in the United States as very strange. That sex, the most private and intimate act that human beings can engage in, has become an omnipresent feature of American public life. Why? do we need to know the sexual orientation of every sports star and actor? Why does the gender journey of the person selling us cheap beer matter? 
Why is there almost irresistible pressure to conform publicly to the narratives of the sexual revolution? Why should elementary school children be taught the language and the norms of the sexual revolution when they would otherwise not even know what sex is? Why did, when did tolerance become a sin? Why is dissension perceived as hateful and bigoted and oppressive? When did ordinary debate come to be labeled violence on our most esteemed university campuses? To understand where you live today, it would be helpful for you to have a working knowledge of what's called cultural Marxism. Now, that is not what you're going to get today because we have, it is so complicated and I'm about 10 years behind the ball on studying this stuff anyway. But we're gonna give you a massively oversimplified introduction today. Karl Marx was another atheist philosopher. He was born after the romantic Rousseau and before Freud, but his impact wasn't felt until later and that's why he's third in our story. Marx understood all of history as a progressive battle between the oppressed and their oppressors. So those are the two things Marx brings to the story. Number one, you are either an oppressor or you are a victim of oppression. And secondly, history is going somewhere. Okay, this is the gospel according to Karl Marx. Freedom is coming and it will come when the oppressed masses rise up and throw off their chains. For Karl Marx, this was an inescapable conviction about the future that was coming. History is moving toward this utopian vision and you either get on board or you will find yourself on the wrong side of history. Well, here's why he doesn't really matter that much. For Karl Marx, this was an economic thing. It was an economic theory. What he was waiting for was an economic revolution. Uh, class warfare for Marx was about the working man, the, you know, the proletariat, if you've heard these words, rising up against the bourgeoisie uh, capitalist oppressor. And uh, that is not what's, that's not totally what's, that's been tried and a total disaster. Cultural Marxism is the marriage of Marx's dream of class warfare with Freud and the romantics and their sexual psychology, okay? Cultural Marxism, marriage between Marx's dream of revolution with the Freudian sexual psychology and the romantics. The cult cultural Marxists agree that Marx is right. History is the unfolding drama of oppressors and oppressed, but he was wrong about the cause. The cause, they say, isn't economic, it's cultural. Freud and the Romantics are, are more correct. It's the, it isn't just the capitalists, it's society in general. It's families, it's especially fathers. It's the patriarchy and it's religion and social institutions and education and mass media. All of these things conspire together to keep the masses ignorant of their true state of oppression. So for Karl Marx, freedom was about overcoming economic oppression. For cultural Marxists, true freedom is about come overcoming psychological oppression. And that you, you have to know that if you're going to understand your newsfeed. Anything that hinders the public expression or celebration of the true inner self, which Freud taught us, is the sexual self. 
Anything that hinders the expression of that has to be destroyed with the same zeal that Marx had for destroying capitalism. Uh, someone asked me between uh, services, he said, can you, can you explain to me why there are so many states, and this is a real thing, okay, there are so many states where it's illegal for a minor to get a tattoo, but if you hinder their gender, their gender expression, you could face lawsuit, or you could lose your child from your custody. Can you explain that? You, it's doctrine. There's doctrine underneath these things. Uh, if the true self is your sexual self, then hindering that is as violent as if, as if you were to beat them. So for cultural Marxists, it's about overcoming psychological oppression. Here's just, here's one quote. This is from 90 years ago. Okay, and there are dozens and dozens of quotes like this. Uh, William Reich says, the, the free, Wilhelm Reich, excuse me, the free society will provide ample room and security for the gratification of natural needs. Thus, it will not only not prohibit a love relationship between two adolescents, but it will give it all manner of, of social support. Such a society will not only not prohibit a child's self-gratification, but on the contrary will conclude that any adult who hinders the development of the child's sexuality should be dealt with severely. That's just one example, and you can see the major themes there. The, there's no, that was 1924. It's impossible to read that and not hear it as a prophetic word about the world we live in today. The, 1934, excuse me. The sexual revolution is not about reforming or changing sexual codes. It is about destroying them completely and anyone that would reinforce them. Whether that's a parent, a teacher, the church, the government, whoever it is, should be, quote, dealt with severely. So the mere suggestion that some sexual acts are wrong and others are right should be treated as an assault, an act of violence against the true self. Such a person is not just mistaken, but they're, they're phobic, not just regressive, but actively hateful and demeaning. Society must affirm psychological identities because that's the true self. Parents, churches, governments, artists, school boards, private businesses, corporations, everyone must bow. You must get on board. Those who won't have blood on their hands, they're haters of humanity, it's psychological violence. Join the lie or kids will die. Bow, 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 bow. Most damning of all for Christians, and especially young Christians, is that if you will not bow, you do not love. You are disobedient to Jesus. You are a hypocrite. You hate people. You're a Pharisee. You hate, hate, hate. You must bow, bow, bow. Over against this stands the Lord Jesus. So this is my opinion now. So everybody, this is my opinion. I'm not speaking for the elders right now. It's this prince's opinion. You are free to disregard this. I believe that the sexual revolution has all the hallmarks of a religion. It, it's a religious movement. It has its own gospel. 
its own evangelists, its own rites of initiation. It has its own mantras. It has its own holy days. June is its holy month. It has its own process for discipling converts, its own process for disciplining dissenters. And it stands in direct opposition to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, I, I don't, you know, I don't understand all of this stuff exhaustively, but here's a thought experiment for you. Can you think of a single Christian doctrine that Jesus affirms that the sexual revolution does not outright deny or so radically redefine as to make it unrecognizable? I, I can't think of one. I'm not saying they're not out there. It's an anti-gospel. The sexual revolution makes empty and false promises of hope and comfort and love and security and belonging and it is based on transparently false philosophy. And it is dragging tens of millions of people away from the love of God. And we cannot bow. History, Jesus says, is not moving toward a sexually liberated utopia. That, that dream is a nightmare. We are beginning to live in that nightmare right now where bodies are turned into commodities and parents and teachers become the enemy and relationships become cheap and completely sexualized. It's just getting harder and harder for people to meet a lifelong partner and women and children in particular are reduced to objects for pleasure and always, always this mantra, your kids are going to kill themselves, kill themselves, kill themselves. In other words, the sexual revolution is it's just good old-fashioned paganism. Jesus says that history is moving inexorably toward the kingdom of God. All over the world right now, while we're trying to sort out the almighty self, Jesus is gathering people in from every tribe and tongue and nation. You just don't ever see it on the news. But it's happening. Over and against this revolution, Jesus says that sexual immorality in all of its various manifestations is not an expression of your authentic self. It's an expression of unbelief. Just plain old run-of-the-mill unbelief. And we can't be part of that. On the surface are things that we all agree on. Love and acceptance and hope for hurting people and human dignity. We can strongly, strongly, strongly affirm these things. But beneath are two different religions with radically different promises being made, radically different sources of those promises and radically different teaching about what those words even mean on the surface. Further, I would say Jesus would strongly object to the notion that humanity can be neatly divided between oppressors and the oppressed. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a naive philosophy. People are complicated. Sin is complicated. The, if we had kept reading in, in Daniel chapter 3, we would see Nebuchadnezzar the oppressor ending the chapter with a profession of faith and then, re, you know, regressing in chapter 4 again. I mean, he just, he sounds like a normal person to me. And that's how normal people really are. For Jesus, 
The, 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 the potential to be an oppressor resides in every single human heart. The, the, the potential to be a victim lies within every single human heart. And the only binary that Jesus recognizes in this regard are those who trust him and will cling to him and, put, and hope in him to deal with their sin and those who will not. Again, our message to the, the pride movement, to the sexual revolution is not get your act together and come to Jesus, but it is come to Jesus in faith, in hope. He's made certain promises to give life to any who will come. So come and know that you come to a great king and let him work in you and work through you. So, we are not homophobic. We do not hate gay or trans people. We love kids, especially hurting kids. The thought that a child would hurt himself is abhorrent to us. We are not perfect. Virtually every single Christian I know, including your speaker, has a history of sexual sin. We are trusting in the grace of God and the salvation that comes through Jesus to save us. We offer that to anyone who would come, but we cannot bow to the lie of the revolution. We would not forfeit the hope and life we have found in Jesus for a false God. We have bowed to false gods before, okay? Every single one of us, we will not bow to this God. So you can see, I, I hope, why the book of Daniel has been, over the years, one of my favorite books of the Bible. This goes all the way back to college for me. Actually, it was in a sermon on Daniel chapter 3, which we just read, October of my freshman year. I remember where I was sitting in the room, the most important sermon of my life, where I was first confronted with my own sexual sin and the need to repent and deal. I, what I heard in Daniel 3 is if Jesus is going to be Lord, you have to trust him with every part of your life. And, and that's where I said yes. When I pray for my boys, when I pray for your kids, when I pray for Faith Community Church, I just ask God, would you give them the spirit of Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah these stories, like Daniel chapter 3 that we just read, they come from a time in history called the Jewish exile in Babylon. And the New Testament points to these stories as a pattern for the church today. Okay, so if you're wondering how do I live faithfully before God in a context that is just saturated with idolatry, that's the tension in Daniel. That's the tension that we live in. So I just, I long for Daniel's courage, for his clarity, for his wisdom. And just a little bit about the story we read. When Nebuchadnezzar over, you know, overran Israel and carted off all these Jews into Babylon, a lot of them were ready to just settle in and become Babylonian without really giving it much thought. Thousands and thousands of them. They traded in their identity as God's unique people and in, in exchange, they enjoyed a decent level of comfort and wealth and security. So events had made it clear that Babylon has won. 
We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. So they abandon their faith in God and his word. And ironically, all their names are lost to history. We don't have any of those names anymore. There were others, though, who reacted strongly in the opposite direction. We know this from Jeremiah and other scriptures. They were sincere, dedicated Jews. They were zealous in their adherence to Jewish tradition. And they were deeply suspicious of Babylon. They, they would have treated Daniel and his friends as traitors. We, there are some evidence in scripture and other historical documents that some of them were even drawn to violent resistance. Okay, but in the midst of that are people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under the influence of people like Jeremiah who strove to live as God's unique covenant people and for the welfare of the city God had placed them in. Okay, they moved, these guys moved in the very highest circles of Babylonian culture and politics and influence and they never compromised the faith of Israel. It's an incredible thing. Their policy, okay, and this matters for the church today, their policy was to say yes to every invitation and challenge that Babylon gave to them but held it so loosely that they knew at any moment they would have to say no and they would lose everything. I think that they knew, okay, not that someday this kind of a scenario would happen. I think they knew this is going to happen. So if, if we rise high enough, sooner or later, Nebuchadnezzar is going to ask for the thing we cannot give. And that is our allegiance and our worship. Chapter 1 says, Daniel chapter 1, which we didn't read, says that they resolved all of this at the outset of their time in Babylon. We will say yes to everything we can say yes to, but whatever happens, we belong to God, body and soul, in life and death, and at a moment's notice, we may have to say no and lose it all. Now, next week, when you are going to come back, <laughs> next week, you get a whole sermon without a single atheist philosopher. Okay, and we're going to start in verse 1 and we're just going to walk through a whole passage of scripture, okay? No history lesson either. But just for today, there are just two things from Daniel, the, the whole story of Daniel, two things that would be worth noting today in the context of this conversation. Those two words are defilement and idolatry, okay? This whole thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego began in chapter 1 when it says they resolved not to defile themselves. The trick with this principle is that it is just not super black and white. Okay, defilement has to do with maintaining an identity as God's people in the midst of idolatry. And when it's back in chapter 1 when it says they resolved not to defile themselves, the line that they drew in the sand of all things was the issue of food, if you've ever read the story. They decided, this is the thing we're not going to do. We're not going to eat the king's food. And what's interesting about that decision, if you know the larger story of the Bible, is that Jesus really explicitly teaches that food cannot defile you. Okay? So Jesus says, food will not defile you. It is not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. Sexual immorality, adultery, lying, and so forth. And these guys are saying, okay, we live in Babylon. We're going to work in Babylon. We're going to love our neighbors. 
but we're not going to be Babylonian. This is the thing. We're not eating Nebuchadnezzar's food. And it, it you know, it looks superstitious. It's, it's like, did you really think that it would make you dirty? And, and no, but they believed it would effectively erase their identity. And that's what defilement is about. This is Old Testament scholar Ronald Wallace. He puts it this way. He says, under certain circumstances, issues that otherwise might be thought trivial can become matters of first importance. The wearing of a little emblem, the giving of a salute, the singing of a short liberation song, however poor the tune or the words, these can inspire heroic resistance or incite demonic oppression, opposition. There was a time in, the Western, in Western cultural history when the length of a boy's hair could assume such symbolic importance it became almost an issue of life and death within the home. And under the providence and blessing of God, a trivial act like the distribution of bread and wine among Christians or the use of a little water in the act of baptism can become acts of surpassing significance and power. The circumstances of the exile made Daniel feel that a hopeless drift could only be halted by standing firm on something, even in matters which at other times might seem inconsequential and strange. You see what he's saying there? Not being defiled means maintaining your distinct identity as God's people in the midst of a strange world. So things that otherwise wouldn't mean anything suddenly take on tremendous symbolic meaning, like life, and these guys are ready to die over this thing. So this is where, um, this is where we, this is hard to apply. This is, this is really, really hard to apply because there is so much nuance there's so much conscience. There needs to be so much grace and so much freedom. But I have two examples for you because I'd rather stir the pot. And st- no, I really would. I would rather stir up conversation and press you back into God's word than leave you where we just then say, well, I don't know what that was about, but that's great. <laughs> two examples from this week. I was talking with a friend who works at a you know, giant corporation across the river, just asking her, you know, how do you manage all this stuff? Here's just one example that she used. Uh, she, it's, and it's extremely simple. She said, I've chosen not to post my pronouns on my, my um, corporate profile or put it on my letterhead. Now, in other times and other places, if Daniel were to hear that she doesn't want to post her pronouns, he would say, what the heck is a pronoun? <laughs> and then he would say, he would say, well, what, what is the big deal? You're, you're a he, him, or, or what? Yeah, okay, why is this a big deal? If you live in the United States in the early 21st century, you know that there's signaling going on there. And all that she's doing is quietly signaling to her coworkers, to, 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 the, to other Christians that are watching, I'm not a part of the revolution. I love you, I'm for you, but it's just, a, it's just a quiet little, you know? Uh, another example, I, um, I think it would be hard 
for a Christian to have anything to do, for example, with the pride flag, the rainbow flag, and maintain a distinctive Christian identity in the world anymore. Now, you may say, it's just a pin. It's a sticker on my office door. God made the rainbow. It's just a piece of cloth. I just say, okay, okay. I would, I would want to press you a little bit, to, and I want you to talk to me, okay? I want you to email me. I hope this is the start of conversation. I'm not just killing conversation. But I'd say, I think that's really naive. Say, we're all real people here. We know what, we know what symbols mean. And what you're doing in that, it, the, the pride flag is a universally recognized symbol of the sexual revolution. It's a clear signal to the church. So when I, if I see a pride flag on someone's post or something on their, on their home, on their car, whatever, I, I just immediately assume, because it's a rational thing to assume, this is a person that does not believe what Jesus says about their bodies or whatever and, ha, and, and is an adherent of a false ideology. Now that may not actually be true. What you mean might be I care about my LGBT neighbors and I do not want them kicked around. That might be what you mean. I, I'm just telling you, I think you're being naive. Because it, symbols matter in these things. And what Daniel and his friends were doing, it's saying, we're going to maintain a distinctly Christian identity and people will know it. It wasn't, didn't need, but, didn't need to be overt, but in chapter 3, when they accused these men, what do they say? Hey, there are some Jews who don't listen to you, King. They knew, they knew who the Jews were. I don't know how they signaled all that. The other principle from, the, from Daniel is the principle of idolatry. And that's clearly illustrated in the story we read. As Christians, we just have to know, and this one is more black and white, by the way, but we have to know when we're being directly asked to affirm things we just can't do and to deny things we can't deny. I had another friend this week, speaking with him, he moves in pretty high circles in a massive corporation across the river. How, do you, how are you doing this? He's, he mentioned Daniel chapter three, and he said, I, I know what I can and cannot affirm, and so far, my company has not asked that of me. He's a blessing to his whole department, he's a great worker, you should be proud of your association with him. But he knows his answer when the time comes. It's there in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. They said, we, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, boss, I'm not going to fight with you about this. If this is the case, verse 17, if the company requires that I teach this thing or have to attend this parade or I have to sign this document, if the school district or the government or whatever has decided I must acknowledge or celebrate what I think is a harmful lie, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from unemployment and public shaming or whatever. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, if I never get to work in this field again, if I'm destroying my career today, if it's a serious setback for my family, I cannot serve a false god or worship the golden image that you have set up. And we have to be ready with that answer. Now, I forgot to mention this in the first service, but Jesus has actually told the church 
what its identifying marker is. Does anybody remember? They will know you are Christians by your, by your love. So when you, when, you in, when you come across another believer at your work or here in the church that's posting their pronouns or something like that, you don't, you don't get to email them and say, Tim Prince said, <laughs> you're bowing down to an image. They may not be doing that at all. Uh, love gives the benefit of the doubt and says, hey, can you help me understand this? Because this is how I'm reading it. And this is how I think other young Christians in the company, they know you're a Christian, they see you pray at lunch, they're assuming stuff, can you help me understand? Um, the th- yeah, all right, we gotta move on. One more story before we wrap up. Carl Truman writes about the, one of the answers of the church to living in a context of idolatry is to offer true worship. We've talked about this before. All of our lives, our worship, our acceptable offering to God happens 24-7, but there is something that unique that happens when a church gathers like this to sing and open God's word together. Uh, this is a significant place where we gather as God's people to fulfill our obligations as citizens of God's kingdom. In the first week of this series, I shared the story of a woman named Laura Smaltz. I don't know if you remember that, but she lived as a man for almost 10 years and then came to know the Lord Jesus through the transformation of her mother. What's interesting about her story is that after coming to faith in Jesus, she continued to live as a man for almost two more years. She talks about, she talks about her love during that time. She loved God's word. She was devouring scripture. She was sincere in her desire to know God. She was growing in her love for God's people. If you can imagine, you know, all the pain and tension that that might have been there. She talks about laying down her life before the Lord during those two years, again and again, asking him to take her life, and she was living as a man. And she talks about listening to the teaching of God's word and reading God's word and spending time with God's people and sitting in the congregation and feeling the Lord say to her, you have to trust me with this too. And she talks about how incomprehensible that was to her. It's just incomprehensible that her gender should have anything to do with following Jesus. Like, she had lived as a man for so long, she says, and the thought of being a woman was so painful to her, it was just inconceivable that these things should be related. But over the course of two years, she got to this place where she was able to lay down even this most painful part of her life. And, and what Jesus did with that was far more abundantly than she could have asked or imagined. When I heard that part of her story, I just thought, thank God. God for her church. Think about all of the interesting leadership meetings they must have had during those two years. Think about all the interesting conversations they must have had during those two years and the people, probably the women, who came alongside her to walk with her and to say, we're learning to follow Jesus too. This is what unbelief has looked like in my own life. This is what Jesus is teaching me. You can trust him. Let's walk with him together. The patience and the I just thank God for a church that can see the difference between the larger machinery of this cultural revolution that's happening 
and the individual sheep that God is sovereignly drawing to himself. And may we be wise like that. May we have our brains on and our theology sharp for the day when people that are on the other side of every political issue from us come in, sit down, and say, I wanna, I wanna know about following Jesus. I don't think we can do that without supernatural help. So let's pray together and we'll, we'll sing. Our Father in heaven, I just commit everything that's been said today to you. I pray in particular for anyone here or watching online that is really wrestling with these things. God, would you please give them grace. Father, would you allow that today is the beginning of new and interesting conversation. Would you press your people more deeply into your word. Please protect Faith Community Church from self-righteousness and pride. Work into us a deeper understanding of the gospel. We need you, our King. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.